And welcome to a new edition of the College 12 Pack. I'm your host, Patrick Khan. As always, Tyler Natuno from LSU Tigers Wire joining us on the show. Uh, Tyler, it's been a little bit of a hiatus, but I feel like there's a lot to talk about. Feeling under the weather last week. Good to go this week. But it's actually a good thing that we didn't record because not, what was it, three hours after we would have finished it, the news broke. Jim Harbaugh is headed to Los Angeles, finally leaving to the NFL. We're not shocked by any of this, are we? I mean, I wasn't. We kind of were all just waiting for it to happen, and, and it finally did happen. Yeah, we almost had another another example of just massive news breaking like two hours after we recorded the podcast. Kind of kind of insane the luck we have with that one. But um, yeah, I mean, I'm with you. Not really a surprise in any conceivable way. I mean, you know, I think – this was kind of the consensus opinion was that Harbaugh was going to leave um, probably to the Chargers job, which he ultimately did. And, and I mean, look, it, it's a great fit. I mean, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, he obviously wanted to make this move. He's flirted with it the last three seasons. Um, and, you know, I think he gets a job, you know, where it's a, a talented roster, a, a quarterback already in place. The ability to win now, I think is really appealing to him and it's understandable why he took that. And I mean, to me, like the most telling thing from all this was I can't remember who who reported this. I want to say it was either Chris Vanini or Nicole Auerbach from The Athletic, but one of them reported a quote from a Michigan source that I think really just kind of told the whole story, which is, um, you know, we gave Jim everything we could, uh, everything we were able to offer him, but we can't offer him a Super Bowl ring. And that I think is really what this comes down to. I don't think it was about the money. I think it's about Jim Harbaugh wanting to prove he can win it all at the highest level of the sport. And he's going to have a pretty good opportunity to do that, I think. Yeah, you talk about going with that opportunity in the NFL. And one thing that we all know is as a new head coach, you're always tied to your first quarterback uh, whenever you, you become a head coach somewhere. And he got a pretty good one. You talk about uh, Justin Herbert and, and what we've seen him do, um, you know, when he can stay healthy, obviously. But, you know, I think that's a good starting point for, for Harbaugh and, and the ability to really build around him. I mean, I think L.A. has a pretty good foundation. They just had the wrong head coach in place. And as we know with Jim Harbaugh, wherever he goes, he finds success. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's one of the best coaches in the sport. I mean, I think he kind of transcends along with maybe a guy like Pete Carroll, the the stereotype of, you know, college coaches not being able to cut it in the NFL. We know he can. I mean, he took the, the San Francisco 49ers to a Super Bowl, um, nearly won one. You know, had his issues, you know, uh, with, you know, relations with the, the front office there and stuff. So we'll kind of see how, you know, what he's learned from that, you know, in round two, you know, it's a very different situation. He's going from, you know, a Michigan program where he was kind of like a God walking around campus. I mean, he was the most quintessential Michigan man there is, you know, he, they loved him. They defended him, you know, with everything they had. And, you know, now he's going into the league where, you know, you can rub people the wrong way and they don't have those same kinds of loyalties. It hurt him his first go around, you know, he's obviously, I, I would say matured since then, you know, we did really impressive things at Michigan. I'm curious, how, you know, how, what he's learned uh, since that first stint in the NFL, because I mean, in terms of the on-field product, I mean, he looked like he was as good as anyone. Yeah, I, I think so. And you, you talk about wanting that Super Bowl ring. Maybe he just wants to be able to sit at the table next to his brother on Thanksgiving and be able to talk about his Super Bowl ring. I mean, he has the national championship, which his brother does not have, but as we know, Super Bowls uh, kind of reign supreme. And so not a shock at all. Uh, and again, not a shock at all to see who was, you know, replacing 
Jim Harbaugh. We're talking about Sharon Moore, the offensive line coach, offensive coordinator, getting the promotion up. You know, he did a good job. He was only credited with two wins, I believe, as the interim head coach once in the early season when they were kind of this rotational interim head coach during the first suspension uh, of the season. Uh, and then, obviously, he was the the coach, uh, de facto head coach against Ohio State in that win. Uh, now he gets an opportunity to run his program, and we're going to kind of see how he does things. This is going to be similar. I know they wanted to keep that core together, so Sharon Moore made sense. I, but I am a little bit shocked that it didn't go a little bit longer um, in terms of maybe looking at some external candidates. But as we know, when you get this late in the coaching carousel cycle, um, unless you can draw the big fish away, which we know Bruce Feldman had mentioned, you know, Brian Kelly among those names. And, you know, and, and, you know that might have perked up LSU ears a little bit, but turned out to be all for naught as they go with Sharon Moore as the new head coach to, to replace Jim Harbaugh. And I, I think that's the way Jim Harbaugh probably saw it going. Yes, yeah, so just to clarify something, I believe, if I remember correctly, Sharon Moore was the interim for four games. I think it was the Bowling Green game earlier in the season and then the final three against Penn State, Maryland, and Ohio State. So he's got you might be right. I might be uh, – that is right because they had a, a second run of uh, mm-hmm. suspensions. That's right. Yeah. It wasn't so just the he, one game. Yeah, so 4-0 as an interim at Michigan mm-hmm. um, and obviously has the big one, you know, the win against Ohio State. That's a pretty hard thing to argue against in an interview. You know, he's got on his resume a win over their biggest rival uh, as the Michigan coach. So, I mean, I think it makes a lot of sense in that regard. Uh, you know, I mean, obviously, like you kind of hinted at, there were bigger fish they could have gone after if they wanted to. You know, maybe you go talk to Brian Kelly, see if he wants to come back to the state where he sort of built his entire career. Um, you know, go talk to Lance Leipold. But I think with those guys, there were no guarantees. I mean, Brian Kelly is making a lot of money at a very good job. I think it would have been an uphill battle to convince him to leave, though I don't think it's like impossible. I mean, there was some smoke that he might have been interested in that job. And then you got a guy in Lance Leipold who has turned down multiple Big Ten jobs, you know, taking extensions to stay at Kansas. I don't think any of those were sure things and you potentially burn the bridge. You you have a pretty good, you know, a pretty good bridge with, with, with Sharon Moore. I think it makes a lot of sense. This was an awkward time to make a hire, you know, way late in the cycle. I think sticking with the internal guy, the continuity makes a lot of sense. But with that being said, this is going to be a big task ahead for Sharon Moore. I mean, he's 37, first head coaching job, you know, hasn't been around the sport for too long, only has about like 14 years, I think, uh, coaching experience. So, you know, it's going to be tough. But like I said, he does come in with the win over Ohio State, and that's going to buy him, I think, a lot of goodwill coming in, especially in what could be a bit of a rebuilding year one. I mean, they do lose a lot. Yeah, they are losing a lot. And and to go back to your point about, you know, the continuity, especially with the second signing day coming up in, in just a matter of weeks or days, really, um, you know, it makes a lot of sense to kind of keep that continuity going because you have a chance of, of you know, losing certain recruits. But as we know, what is it? I, they did the numbers. Was it 80 percent, 90 percent of your class is signed in the early signing period? Yeah, something it's like just that. a handful. But I mean, but there are some big guys who do sign late. Uh, but, you know, th- that's neither here nor there. I do think that that was it's the smart move, I think, with the continuity. And you're right. There, it is an uphill climb because uh, all he has to do is uh, look to the south uh, and, and look at what Ohio State's doing. And 
absolutely just loading up. I mean, with former Alabama players, they got Caleb Downs who's coming in, uh, Julian Sand, former five-star quarterback signee, and I say former. He just signed this last class. He's already leaving. Uh, now he's going to um, gonna go play at, at Ohio State eventually. And I think that kind of the transfer portal and, and seeing this kind of opened the door for some of these players to get out of their NLIs. <laughs> like, I'll just enter the transfer portal after I sign and leave. Uh, which is what Julian Sayan did. I mean, obviously, Quinshawn Judkins, who might be one of the biggest acquisitions his team made, not to mention they're going to have Travion Henderson, so they got probably the most talented backfield in the country. So uh, knocking off Ohio State again this upcoming season, it's going to be tough. Um, but, um, you know, Sharon Moore, I think, if he can just keep the continuity going, keep that system in place, keep his defensive coordinator, I think they'll be good to go uh, for – uh, what should be a, another fantastic battle between Ohio State and Michigan with new head coach. And, and you know, and really this is a, a going to be a big year for Ryan Day, um, you know, because there's been a lot of whispers. I don't know how loud they're getting, uh, but we do know that the they faithful there in Columbus are very upset uh, with what's been transpiring over the last three years. Yeah, I'm glad you know. I'm glad you mentioned that, and that's why I I brought up how important it is. I think that he already has that one Ohio State win, because uh, I I you know we'll see how things develop. But I I think right now he's probably not going to get it again in year one. I mean, I think Ohio State's going to be a really really good football team next year. Um, I think they won the off. They're the winner of the off season. Um, I would say. I mean, them and maybe Ole Miss are the only two that. Have made this, you know, similar levels of of game changing moves. I really like a lot of them. You know, Will Howard, great move. You know, Quinchon Junkins, great move. I think this team is going to be stacked, um, and it's going to be tough for Michigan in year one. But I think, you know, it's gonna it's gonna ease that sting a little bit if you are, are not able to win that game next year because you know he did manage to do it already. You know, in an interim kind of awkward capacity. So that that I think does prove a lot. And then. As we look further to the south, I'm talking all the way south, down to Tennessee, uh, we got NIL problems. We got infractions, investigations. Uh, we've already kind of seen a little bit of this with Florida State and um, what, what happened there with one of the assistants getting a suspension. Uh, and now Tennessee's going to have to deal with this. And, and, and this ultimately just speaks to the Pandora's box that the NCAA opened and uh, clearly weren't ready for yeah. So, um, you know, according to ESPN, this investigation from the NCAA mostly centers around um, NIL and especially as it pertains to uh, Nico Yamaleva, who is a quarterback signing in the 2023 class, likely going to be their starting quarterback next season. Um, you know, details pretty unclear at this point. What we kind of do know is that they're looking at possible level one and level two violations. What we also know is that, you know, potential penalties here could maybe be more severe because they're looking at Tennessee as a uh, potential repeat violator. You know, they've had multiple investigations run-ins with the NCAA in the last couple of years, most notably the Jeremy Pruitt thing uh, from a couple of years back. So could potentially be something to watch there. But I mean, to me generally, like this is just more of a trend. I think we're going to continue to see. I mean, we're what coming up on like two, two ish years of, of NIL being a thing. And, and I think, the NCAA has kind of been sitting there and watching and just kind of gathering evidence on a lot of these teams. They've dropped a few of them. You know, you mentioned the one against Florida state, also Florida. Uh, they're looking into the whole Jaden Rashada saga there. I think, I mean, truthfully, I mean, we'll see, this could end up being worse for Tennessee than others because of their past violations, but 
I think ultimately what we're seeing here is the beginning of a of much larger trend. I think they're going to drop a lot of these, um, you know, investigations. And I mean, will it actually mean anything for these teams? I mean, you know, based on past history, probably not. But I think it is something that, you know, I think is going to probably lead to wider discussions about, you know, more regulation on NIL because there just isn't really much transparency right now. We don't really know how it works. And I think there's legitimate, you know, Tennessee is defending themselves. They're saying they didn't violate any rules. I think there's a lot of just lack of understanding on at all levels about what's allowed and what's not here. Yeah. And then you look at, you know, you have the attorney generals from Tennessee in the state of Virginia uh, that are filing antitrust lawsuits uh, against the NCAA. So, I mean, it's most of this is going to transpire in the court system um, and, and obviously why the NCAA has been hell bent on getting, you know, getting politics involved and having Congress take care of this problem for them, uh, which ultimately I don't I don't know if this is where it's leading, but this is how I feel, Tyler. All roads lead to a separation of power is kind of where what I feel of this whole situation because, uh, you know, there's no governing. I mean, NCAA is a governing body, but they're not governing in a way that I guess that we thought that they would. Yeah, I mean, like, this is a conversation for a, another podcast, ultimately. But, like, I, I agree. Like, I think that you're probably going to look at some sort of separation between these schools and the NCAA, um, you know, as, at least for football. And I think, you know... I don't know. There's just a lot of issues you're going to have. I think, you know, the professionalization of this sport is, is one thing, but I think, you know, there's just no oversight. Like, I mean, you look at the NFL, you know, there's contracts and there's, you know, a player's union and there's collective bargaining agreements. There's all these things. None of that exists at this level. It's all sort of the wild West here. So yeah, I mean, you've got teams that are skirting the rules. The rules themselves aren't quite clear. Um, and also, ultimately, the only organization enforcing it is one that's proven itself to be pretty toothless um, historically. So, yeah, I don't really see how this is a, a viable long-term solution, but I'm also not exactly sure what's going to catalyze like a major change here. You know, we, as we know, the FBS directors run college football, and ultimately, it's going to be them who decide to pull away and try something else, uh, whether it's a uh, a college football commissioner. I mean, I still think like the NCAA is going to be within power as far as, you know, college basketball is concerned because they run the entire March madness and, and all those things. Uh, but when it comes to football, the moneymaker, uh, I would not be surprised if there was a complete separation. And then we have a foot, an FBS commissioner. Uh, I mean, that just seems to be the way that it's going. But let's get back to the actual discussions on the football field. Uh, and out there in Iowa City, there's a new offensive coordinator. As we all know, we all joked about it throughout the season. The Brian Ferentz watched the the march to, well, I don't remember what it was. It was like 350. Three, three, or, 325, I think. Uh, 325. Some, you know, yeah. It was some wild number um, for 25 points per game. And, and that's all well and good, and that's all done. Uh, it was <laughs> announced he wasn't coming back. But now Iowa seems to have found their new offensive coordinator and. Pardon me if this doesn't sound exciting that Tim Lester is the new offensive coordinator at Iowa. It feels like a very Iowa hire. It, well, let me rephrase that. This feels like a Kirk Ferentz hire. Yeah, 100%. 100%. Um, yeah, I mean, that March 325, by the way, that was dead in the water by like September. 
they, they were not even close to to reaching that milestone. Obviously had a lot of offensive injuries that didn't help. When you out. have to average like 40-something points a game just to get to 25 a game, um, for like a remainder of the season, you you knew you were yeah, dead in the water. They fell that far behind, like after three games or something like that. It was ridiculous. Um, so yeah, not not even close there. Uh, but yeah, I'm I'm with you on the Tim Lester hire. I mean, certainly not anything I'm gonna you know be too excited about. I don't think anyone else in the Big Ten is too worried about that. So if you're not aware, Tim Lester is a uh, former Western Michigan coach from 2017 to 2022. Got fired last year after I mean thirty seven and thirty two record. Um, so so decent, you know, decently consistent in the MAC, which is hard to do that. Um, but ultimately, they made a change. He spends this past season out of football, uh, or out of college football, sorry, and uh, was an analyst with the Packers. He's coming back. I mean, it makes sense in a way. Like you get a guy, you know, with knowledge of the region, with head coaching experience, but um, you know, as Ben Stevens, a big a Big Ten poster on Twitter, pointed out, you know, Lester's last year at Western Michigan, his offense was one of the worst in all of the FBS. Um, and his last year at Syracuse, which was his last offensive coordinator stop in, I think, 2015, was uh, was bought half in the FBS. So not necessarily the most impressive track record here. And also considering he won't have, you know, offensive autonomy, like this is still Kirk Ferentz's team and they weren't going to do some, you know, wide reaching philosophical shift overnight with this hire. Like that just wasn't going to happen. I mean, I'm sure their candidate pool was limited for that reason. Um, and that's probably why they ended up with a guy that neither of us are particularly enthused about, but I mean, truthfully, I don't know if it matters even if it even mattered who they were going to hire, because I think Kirk's not going to let this thing uh, be much different than it has been. I mean, there's a certain way they like to play football, and I don't think that they will really want to change it up. Now, mind you, Tim Lester did have some top 40 offenses while he was at Western Michigan. Um, so it's not like this guy is incapable, but I think we both are in the same school of thought here where a, a Kirk Ferentz team is going to run the football, is going to focus on being a slow, meticulous offense. They're not an explosive offense. We know that. Uh, for one, I don't think they get they can really get the athletes on that side of the ball to Iowa. They have athletes on the on the defense who can score, obviously, because we've seen it time and time again. I just don't know if they can get an offense that's that's explosive that's down the field. So yeah, this hire is not going to speak well to. Uh, well, it's not going to excite me, for instance. But um, I think it would be a little bit better if it wasn't under such scrutiny when you talk about Kirk Ferentz and his autonomy. Um, because if, if I'm signing on to take over an offense coordinator position with a, at a D1 school, I want to have full control of who my quarterback coach is, who, who are all my quality control coaches, positional coaches, and I just don't think Tim Lester is going to have that. Yeah, and you know the counterpoint to everything we're saying here too is that in spite of you know, being completely anemic offensively, this team is still routinely winning 10 plus games every, you know, most years. So, you know, maybe who cares, but uh, I will say, you know, the big 10 West no longer exists. Your path is about to get significantly harder. You can't just waltz into Indianapolis like you used to, you know, you're going to have to be competitive with the Ohio States and the Michigans and the USC's and the Oregon's of the world. You know, I, you know, Iowa's days of, of sort of, you know, getting in there and being just a lucky upset away from maybe getting to the playoff, that's probably a thing of the past. So that is the concern I would say here is, you know, the status quo has changed. 
you know, so so they can try to maintain the status quo as much as they want, but that's not going to be the case in 2024 and beyond. So big questions there. I mean, maybe Cade McNamara coming back, you know, will spark something, but a lot of questions. You know, once they get past those first three games, it starts to get significantly harder. Yeah, they're going to play Minnesota, but back-to-back games against Ohio State and Washington, whew, good luck, buddy. Um, that that's going to be that's going to be a tough one. Um, I mean, they're going to play Wisconsin. They got to play UCLA, Maryland, Nebraska. Um, so not exactly like the worst schedule in the Big Ten, uh, but having to play two of the premier teams. Um, Right, you know, back to back weeks. That's that's tough. That's I don't care if Washington changed their head coach. They're still talented. Uh, we've seen what what Jet Fish is doing over there as far as collecting talent, bringing them uh, to Washington, bringing them to the new look Big Ten. All right, let's talk some hoops. We're finally going to talk some hoops. We, you know, I've been I've been like teasing it for like months. We're finally going to talk about it. I don't know if you know this. Uh, Saturday night, big game. Duke, North Carolina in Chapel Hill. You know, there, there are very few college sports games. I'm talking football, basketball, baseball, you know, insert sport game here that get me as excited as a you know, I'm a I'm neutral for the most part. I mean, I do I do love the Dukies. Don't get me wrong. I love them. Uh, but I don't think there's anything better than watching Duke, North Carolina. I mean, there are very few games that I would put ahead of this, um, regardless of sport, than uh, this this matchup that's going to go on. Yeah, I mean, I'd agree with that. I think, you know, it's definitely up there. I mean, for sure, uh, you know, I don't think there's anything in college basketball that that compares. I mean, it's it's sort of stands alone in that regard. You know, I think even comparing it, you know, to rivalries in other sports, I mean, to me, I put it right up there. Maybe maybe slightly behind, but I, I'd put it right up there with the Iron Bowls of the world and the the games between Michigan and Ohio State. Like I I think it's in that mix of of most heated rivalries. You know the history's there. Teams are usually pretty good. Um, you know both are usually you know one of the you know among the best teams in the ACC in the country. Yeah, I and mean, I think I think this year specifically is actually a really interesting kind of iteration of the rivalry too. Because like I mean. Obviously, both teams are in new eras, you know, in early parts of new eras. You know, Hubert Davis coming off a disappointing year, really disappointing year last year for North Carolina. They've looked much sharper to start the year. So I think interesting, you know, kind of improvement on the trajectory there. Whereas Duke, you know, I think John Shire, jury's still very much out. I mean, he's maintained, you know, the the sort of machine of it all. You know, we'll see if the the tournament success and all that ultimately follows. But I think it's really interesting. I think, you know, two programs that – you know, it's kind of unclear where things are trending, you know, once the legendary coaches have moved on, it's, you know, neither of them have really claimed the spot over each other. So I think this year is going to be really interesting. Yeah. When you talk about rivalries, I, you know, I'm not going to put either one of us on the spot here, but yeah, I'm with you. Like it's right up there with the iron bowl, the game, uh, red river rivalry weekend, uh, you know, world's largest outdoor cocktail party. I mean, you could talk about all the rivalry games in football and, it's definitely right up there for me. Uh, I, th- yeah. I think it's um, it's one of the best. And, and I agree with you. I don't think you can touch that uh, in college basketball today. Um, there, there's really not. I mean, it's it's uh, you know it's it's reminiscent. Like go to the NBA with the Celtics and the Lakers, like those old rivalries. It's right up there with that. I mean, I th- I think it's one of the best. And and you're right. You talk about Hubert Davis and John Shire and and the abilities that they've been able to do, and they they keep the machine going. And 
Um, well, <laughs> up until Tuesday night, it was looking pretty good for North Carolina until that abysmal loss. Uh, one point, I believe it was a one point loss to Georgia Tech. Um, you know, and, and, and you know, hats off to the job um, that the Georgia Tech <laughs> coach is doing since he's taken over that program. And, and really, um, that's a that's a resume building win for him. And but, you know, as far as North Carolina, they have high aspirations. And truth be told, that was not a loss that I saw coming. No, no, it really wasn't. I mean, kind of uncharacteristic. They were 9-0 to start ACC play. You know, obviously on the road, you know, winning on the road in conference play is is, is always tough. Um, but against a Georgia Tech team that, you know, has been feisty, no doubt about it, but, you know, has a losing record on the year. Um, but, yeah, huge win for uh, Stoudemire and, and, and Georgia Tech. Like, I think there's really a, a impressive collection. You know, I don't want to go too far down a tangent here, but I think there's a really impressive collection of just young up-and-coming coaching talent um, in the country. I mean, you look at, like, Lamont Paris, South Carolina, the job he's doing this year. I mean, there's just a lot of guys on the rise. Um, I think it's kind of the opposite of college football in that way, where, you know, you're seeing these jobs be dead end jobs in college football. It's quite the contrary. Um, There's a really nice, I think, progression and movement within college basketball. And, you know, not to like throw out my, uh, my Red Raiders, but uh, despite the loss last night in Fort Worth to TCU, Graham McCaslin has been doing a fantastic job. You know, I went into the season thinking this was a rebuilding year and he's like, no, we're competing. Uh, We're we're playing for a big 12 championship in year one, which, you know, like you said, in college football, you can kind of view these jobs as uh, it's a dead end job, you know, for people who have high aspirations. Uh, But when it comes to college basketball, I mean, I, one thing that I've seen in my lifetime that I never thought I would ever see is Texas Tech play for a national championship. Um, so, I mean, they can clearly – they can do it in Lubbock, which is kind of nice to see uh, as opposed to my football team. But we'll see what Joey <laughs> McGuire can do now that he's got Micah Hudson. And um, But not to go on a tangent on that. But, you know, as we're talking about North Carolina, I kind of wanted to get into some a little bit of bracketology talk, and we're not going to dive too deep here. Um, we're not going We're not going field to 68 here. But <laughs> – uh, I do want to talk about the top seeds, and and, and Tyler, I think we're in agreement with three, right? Yeah. Uh, we've got UConn, who's defending national champions. They look good in the Big East. Houston, since coming over the Big Twelve, is doing exactly what they did, but prior to the Big Twelve, and that was just absolutely dominating top teams, um, doing doing a really good job. Obviously, they had a uh, close overtime win against Texas, a feisty Texas team. Uh, but they were able to come out on top. And obviously Purdue, who Matt Painter seems to always have that team raring to go. Uh, just don't let him play Grant McCaslin in the uh, first round. Uh, that didn't go out too well for him. Uh, but let's talk about that fourth number one seed. Uh, we, we have differing opinions, and I kind of made my opinion <laughs> prior to last night's game. Uh, but I'm going to stick to my guns here. And I'm going to say North Carolina is that fourth number one seed. Uh, I mean, the fact that they're nine and one in ACC play and just the ability to win um, night in and night out is, like you said, it's tough, especially in a basketball power conference like the ACC, who's been known. You know, I I, I don't know if you agree with me, but I think um, outside of maybe the Big 12, ACC are probably the top two basketball conferences. SEC is making some headway, um, I think, in, in more recent years. Uh, that may be prior to that, but um, really tough. But I, I just want to stick with North Carolina. Like I said, I'm going to stick to my guns, and we're going to find out a, a hell of a lot about North Carolina uh, against Duke on Saturday. 
Yeah, I would have been with you, um, obviously, before that Georgia Tech loss. And I, I mean, I still think there's a fair argument for them to be up there. I mean, they're still 17 and four, I believe. Um, we're nine and one in the ACC. I mean, I agree with your point about the ACC. I think this is maybe a, a slightly down year for the conference, you know, but, you know, when you look at teams like kind of like Virginia is sort of disappointing a little bit. Uh, Clemson fell off after their strong start, but still, it's still a deep and talented league. Um, I mean, I think they're definitely still in that mix for a one seed and definitely at worst on the two seed line. Um, but right now, I'd honestly, I think I'd put my fourth number one seed. I think I'd go Wisconsin, honestly. I feel like they've had a very like quietly incredible season so far. Um, in a Big Ten that I think also is maybe a little bit more down than it's been, but still really deep. Um, you know, they're they've only got they're like six and one in Big Ten play. They're six and three in quadrant one games, which is really impressive. I mean, to have played nine quadrant one games already um and win six of them. I think mean, North Carolina's four and three, I believe, in quadrant one games. Yeah. So yeah, so I mean, I think you know they're coming off you know a fifteen point win against a Michigan State team that ranks in the top twenty five in the net. That's pretty impressive. Big stretch coming up here. I mean, they've got two quadrant one games back to back at Nebraska and then at home against Purdue. You know, obviously that'll tell us a lot about this team. And I think you know between how Wisconsin does in those games um, and how North Carolina does against Duke on Saturday, I think I could easily flip these back. You know, by the end of the weekend, I could be back to saying North Carolina back on the one seed line. But I think for the time being, I really like what Wisconsin's doing. Um, I'm, I'm very curious to see how they close out Big Ten play. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's interesting you bring up, you know, the quad one and, and how you look at Wisconsin, a team with six and three in quad one. Um, if you look at the other three seeds that we talked about where you're talking about UConn, Purdue, Houston, all seven and two in quad one game. So um, there's not a whole lot of teams that have won five, six. You know, there's a uh arizona five and three but they're a little bit further down the list um as far as you know where where do you see them at uh kansas again five and three you know some of the powers up there but you know you have to that that's impressive when you talk about being six and three in quad one that you know i think you have a very valid argument there with wisconsin a team that uh really has done well for itself uh at you know at that 16 and four mark as you as you mentioned uh, you know, another team that I kind of, they're up there, but they're not, I'm not going to say that they're uh, quad or number one uh, worthy was Tennessee. There was another team that I kind of discussed, um, but, you know, looking at their resume, three and four in quad one, and, and I think they're two and one. Uh, no, they're five and one in quad two and three and four in quad one. So, uh, but I mean. And coming they're, they're, off a home loss to that South Carolina team, yeah, they are coming off that loss to the South Carolina team, which is a, I think, like you said, you talked about the job that that head coach is doing there, South Carolina, and and obviously that was a huge statement win for them. They've got to build upon that if they really want to be seen as, as a team that could make some noise. But yeah, it's just kind of interesting when you look at it, and you know some of the other teams that, you, that we mentioned, um, you know, national powers or or really, you know annual powers haven't really down years Baylor Gonzaga I mean that the Kansas has struggled with with three losses all on the road I mean they haven't lost at home uh but you know they are losing on the road to teams that really they have no business losing especially the to me the worst loss they had was at West Virginia uh, a team that had won I think they've won seven games all year mm-hmm 
So, you know, it's kind of interesting, yeah. but I'll agree with you now. Um, I, I did say North Carolina. I will stick to my guns, but I totally can see Wisconsin there among the top four. You know, but that's going to do it for this edition of the College 12-Pack. We'll be back next week talking more college basketball, college football, and whatever else is going on in the wacky world of college sports. But for Tyler, I'm Patrick. We'll see you next week.